would he um, classify himself as as an evangelical Christian or born again? I don't think so. But he tells me that if there is a God, and he believes there is, that it, it must be the Christian God. He studied all the different religions, and he's come up to the fact that the, the Christian faith seems to make the most sense out of all the faiths that are out there. So I told him, I'm studying Matthew chapter 7 this week, verses 7 through 11, and, and I decided to give him a little synopsis. I said, it's that passage where, where, where Christ is speaking to the disciples, and I said, it's so often taken out of context. And as he speaks to the disciples, he talks to them about seeking and, or asking, and you will find is seek and, and to knock, and he says, oh, wait, I know that one. I said, you do? And he says, yeah. He says, I understand that's how that's taken out of context. He says, I'm very familiar with that. He said, in that passage, people think that they can go to God and ask God for anything. And then God will just give them what they want. And when that doesn't happen, they become disillusioned. They state, well, that didn't work for me. God isn't real. And, and, and they pack it in and decide not to go to church anymore. As I listened, I thought, you know, he's not wrong. He's not wrong at all. People do become disillusioned. The verses are, at ta- from time to time, pulled out of context and used to purport a, a prosperity gospel or a softer theology or version of this, the, the health gospel. You know where nothing ever bad happens to a Christian? The expectation is that there is a, a, that God is some sort of cosmic vending machine that we have access to. And we can make our requests to Him. And it's His job, not only to love us, but to make sure that you and I are, are happy. As a result, many, many a believer's faith has ended up abandoned and shipwrecked because of poor teaching. Because of taking these particular verses out of context. And individuals over the years, well, they find themselves looking at these verses and questioning what they believe. Is prayer just a hit and miss thing? Does God really care for me? Am I not, am I not doing something right? Is, is God, is God mad at me? Is there something that I have missed? Another effect of not understanding these verses in their context is that they miss out on what God has in store for them. What God has in store for you and I just for the asking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness and your love. We thank you that we can gather together. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promises in there. Father, help us as we look into your word this morning to push aside all the the worries and cares from the past week and from the week to come. To focus in on what you have for us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you open your Bibles with me this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. We're down to verses 7 and 11. But before I begin, I want to preface this. I want to preface by saying this. This morning is not a complete theological understanding of prayer. We are really just talking about this section. 
And that's not to say that God doesn't want us to bring our petitions to Him. He does. And like any good father, sometimes He says yes, but in His wisdom, sometimes He says no, and other times it's not now. But Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 7 and look at verse 7 and 8 first. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I think we have to start off with the fact that this is not a blank check for you and I to ask and receive whatever we want. It's not a promotion, as one commentator put it, the gabbit and grabbit theology. As we discuss this morning, I want to talk about four reasons. And if you have the notes, I accidentally put three in there. But it's four reasons that we can discredit this theory of prosperity gospel and that this, these verses support anything like that. The first reason would be this. This promise that we have here is only made to believers. When we read about the false prophets and the religious and the curious onlookers, they are always referred to in the third person. Even look at the beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we read this, and this is how the sermon begins. Seeing the crowds, he went up to on, on the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. The disciples. Not every, there was lots of other people looking around, but that's not who he was addressing. Secondly, Matthew 7, 7 through 11 has a context. These words are part of a longer sermon that Jesus has preached on a hillside, a, a short distance outside of Capernaum. A, a sermon that, that begins by pressing home the point that you and I need to understand that we are spiritually bankrupt. We have a need for a Savior. And until we come to Christ as Savior, we remain dead in our sins. Jesus then discourses on kingdom ethics, how we need to live a a, a greater righteousness than the righteousness presented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He expects us to have a higher standard than the religious elites. Immediately before the passage this morning, he discusses the wisdom found in discernment, in proper discernment, first for ourselves, before we begin to aid others, such as the brother who had the speck in his eye and needed some help. The preceding passage also warns of the dangers of a critical spirit, of being able to discern of whom we should share the gospel truths to, who will be receptive and those who would attack us. Wisdom is such a a necessary aspect of the Christian life. Scripture does not answer every little question for us. It isn't a rule list. Every little moral dilemma that we will encounter in life, Scripture does not address directly. It's wisdom that we need to take the truths of the Word of God and then begin to develop principles from those truths. Life is is far too complicated for a simple list of rules. And that is exactly what the the religious leaders did. They created a uh, a list of rules 
We call it legalism. That's what they did, and that is exactly what Christ spoke against. I want to look at one example. I don't want us to look at wisdom, and I want us to talk about the need for wisdom by talking about one hot-button issue in our culture, abortion. There are those who call themselves Christians and still advocate for a pro-abortion stance. We need wisdom to be able to address those who would advocate for abortion. Here are a few of their arguments. First, they'll tell you, the Bible never addresses abortion directly. It's never mentioned in Scripture. Jesus is silent. He never talks about abortion. In the Old Testament, 600 laws, nothing. Well, arguing from silence is not a good argument. They also ignore the fact that abortion isn't consistent with God's view of the deplorable acts in the surrounding nations, of God's view on the sanctity of life, including the life of a child, nor the attitude that we find in Scripture to the unborn. In your notes, mark down Psalm 139, 13 through 16. I'm just going to read two verses from there, 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And if we're to turn to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God informs us there that man is created in his image. In Psalm 51, Five, it indicates that the sin nature is present in the life of the child in the womb of the mother. Then we can turn to, as this is the first Advent, we, first Sunday of Advent, we could turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and there we read this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. By the Holy Spirit. Secondly, pro abortion advocates will also say that life begins only when God breathed into man. And then, because of that, what we see in Genesis 2 7, until a child breathes outside the womb, there is no life as defined by the Bible. They miss something here. They're taking the creation of man as normative. And it's not normative to every birth of every human being since that time. Note, even Eve was created in a different manner than Adam was. Third, there are four verses in the Mosaic Law that claim to prove God does not see a fetus as a child or a life. If you want to turn there with me, it's Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through through 25. They look at these verses, and, and it's going to get a little technical here, but there's a point to why I'm taking you through this. The church needs wisdom, and we need to deal with complex truths. Biblical illiteracy leads to confusion of Scripture. And what happens then is often our young people walk away from the church because we don't speak to the issues in our world. 
I'm going to read it from the Revised Standard Version because this is the one that they like to read it from. Starting in verse 22 of Exodus 21. When men strive together and hurt a woman with child so that there is a miscarriage and yet no harm follows, the one who hurt her shall be fined according to the woman's husband's shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The argument of ver- is all in verse 22, or the main part of the argument is in verse 22. And it's that word miscarriage. So when a miscarriage occurs, they say, Okay, miscarriage has occurred, and the man is only fined. And they would also say that the word harm is linked directly to the woman. And then they'll say this, that the verse conveys that the penalty to the man who caused the miscarriage is only a fine. Therefore, Jesus and God, God only sees a fetus, not a child. However, and they would go on, if harm comes to the woman, and I presume that they mean she suffers a severe injury or she dies, then it comes down to life for life, limb for limb, then capital punishment may be in order. So they would tell you the penalty is evidence of how God views the fetus as a non-life. There's a problem, though. Very few translations choose to use the word miscarriage in verse 22. The issue is twofold here. First, the translation of one Hebrew word, yatza, which can mean this, to come out, produce, to go out, to exit, go forth, proceed, to deliver. The ESV translates it, come out. The New Living Translation and the New American Standard Bible translates it, gives birth prematurely. Linking the whole concept to that idea of coming out to deliver. These are clear understandings because when they use the term miscarriage, there's a presumption of the death of the child. But that's not what Scripture is saying. Secondly, the, are the words used in the RSV and the ESV are no harm. The Christian Standard Bible uses no injury. Well, who is that directed to? Who is there no harm to? In the Hebrew, the word could be translated evil, mischief, harm, or hurt. So I'm going to reread the verses for you, but this time I'm going to read them from the Christian Standard Version Bible. Sorry, Christian Standard Bible. Verse 22. When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury... The one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Well, whom is the injury? Who has the harm inflicted? Who has the evil inflicted on it? The woman or the child? A clear understanding when you read it as the Christian Standard Bible has put it out is the Mosaic Law equates life inside the womb as valuable as outside the womb. The harm is to the child. So if there's a fight, 
and the woman gives premature birth to her children or child, and the child's fine, it's fine. The person gets fined. That's it. But if there's something wrong with a limb or the child dies, then the law takes over. Limb for limb, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. The sanctity of human life, the sanctity of life is not a modern white evangelical construct as abortion advocates like to make it out. This just scratches the surface, but there are so many topics in Scripture and in our lives that we need to deal with. Arguments may sound plausible, When proper research is done, it just shows it's an excuse for man to cover up their own sin. And and however, to argue the point with those who staunchly espouse this would simply be throwing pearls before the swine. And I'm shocked at how many people actually will believe in this. A Pew Research study done, and this is done in the States in 2014, and I don't think we're any better in Canada. Evangelical Protestants... 33% said abortion should be legal in almost all cases. 4% weren't sure. Even Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses had fewer people adhering with abortion. Of Catholics surveyed, 48% believe it should be legal in all cases. Every other major religion was 50% or more. That included mainline Protestant denominations and traditional black churches. It's astonishing. We need wisdom to understand how Scripture interacts with our daily life and in our culture. So to recap, the Sermon on the Mount is written to believers. Context is important. Lifting the verses out of context results in bad theology, which results in confusion. And we are in need of wisdom to navigate navigate life's complexities, which is gained by asking, seeking, and knocking. So the third reason why these verses are not a blank check. The promise promise as mentioned is to disciples, but, but it narrows it down even a little further there. A disciple is what? One who will keep God's commandments. We read this in 1 John three nineteen through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Promises are for those who keep his commandments. If you're living outside of God's will, if you're living outside of following Christ's commandments, you cannot expect for these verses to apply to you. Fourth, 
our motives must be right. Now, I could spend a lot more time on the verse that I'm about to read, but I just want to highlight one truth from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, and remember, he's speaking to a church here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God is not obliged. He does not oblige himself here to answer selfish, carnal requests. This is not a gabbit and grabbit theology. Jesus assures his disciples, though, that wisdom, courage, strength to live as he's called us to live, to live as citizens of his kingdom, is there for the asking. All we need to live as citizens of the kingdom, that higher level of righteousness expected by his, of his children, is just there a prayer away from us. He wants us to pray. So in the original reader in Matthew, when they were reading these verses, they would understand the verses in this way. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Consistent prayer is the point. Consistent, persistent prayer. Look again at those first, at those key words this morning. Ask, seek, and knock. There's an intensity that builds there. Asking for something is one level. Then actually asking and seeking is another level. And then finally, knocking on the door to get someone's attention is a different intensity. Now, don't push it to an extreme to think that God is to be made out to be some sort of deity that must be woken before he'll do anything. The point, I believe, is that you and I are to be encouraged to be persistent before God in prayer. And at the same time, to remember this, that if we're praying for something for for months or even years, that God can use that as we go before him and we pray persistently. He can use that to mold us and change us. He can use that to help us to grow in reliance to him. And he may use that to change our hearts, that over time, that prayer request that we thought was so important, he may change our heart. And we may be praying something, some, something vastly different as time goes by. I want you to think with me for a moment. In asking, there is an element of humility. In acknowledging our need. Seeking, as James Montgomery Boyce stated, asking is asking with action. I don't want to push this too far, but as I thought and I studied this week and I looked at it, I want to use wisdom for, as an example. If I lack wisdom and I go to God and I ask him for wisdom, that's the first part. And then I start seeking and going before God and I, God, I want wisdom. I need wisdom. Well, is there anything that I myself could do in my seeking? What would that look like? I think it might look like this. There are things that I could that I could do. I could consistently read the Proverbs. 
the wisdom literature in Scripture, to begin to really study them and understand them. I can join a Bible study to understand the whole Bible. I might even ask someone to mentor me, a mature Christian, and come alongside. And I I struggle in certain areas, and I need someone to mentor me. I think the idea is seek is followed up by knock. So the idea is perseverance. So we ask, and then we look and say, what can I do? And we keep knocking and persevering before the Lord with our requests. Keep on going before God. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. In the Gospel of Luke, tucked right after the Lord's Prayer, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and before our equivalent passage here this morning, in Luke there's another story, the story of the persistent neighbor. It's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 9. And here's what Luke said. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, which of you has a friend, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, don't bother me, the door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his imprudence, persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The idea is persistence. Not that God needs us, needs to be pestered before he will do anything, but God wants to see our faith. God wants to see us relying on him because that's where our strength comes from. I've often talked of there being tensions in Scripture. Here is where another one is. People often will get discouraged over prayer due to a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in no way negates our responsibility and our accountability. Contrary to some that I believe to be misguided, I don't believe the Bible teaches that you and I are just puppets playing out some marionette and predetermined script. Our prayer life should be persistent. God is asking, we should be going to God, asking Him for strength, for wisdom, to navigate life in a God-honoring way. And that is our responsibility. James 1.5 states this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it would be given him. Paul in Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 Paul asked fellow believers, fellow Christians, to strive with him, to struggle with him in prayer. That whole idea of persistence. Verse 30 out of chapter 15 in Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. R.A. Torrey wrote a book. Uh, he, he was an American theologian. He, he served at Moody Bible Institute. He was also the pastor at what we call Moody Church today. And he was also a while for about 10 years, I think it was, he was dean at what we now know as Biola Seminary. Well, he wrote a book on prayer in 1924. It's called The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. And, and he looks at and records for us reasons why he believes the church 100 years ago was lacking in prayer. Here's what he says. We do not live in a praying age. We live in an age of hustle and bustle, of man's efforts and man's determination, of man's confidence in himself, his power to achieve things, in an age of human organization and human machinery and human push and human scheming and human achievement, which in the things of God means no real achievement at all. Sound similar? Perhaps today we could use words such as human ingenuity, social science, and science. See, science and humanities have become the gods to which our culture worships at. However, in the Sermon of the Mount, it beckons us to prayer. It beckons us to seek, to ask, to knock, God, knock and that God will answer. Well, what insurance do we have that God answers those requests? What assurance do you and I have? Well, to give us that discernment that you and I need. Look with me to Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is using a familiar argument here. From the lesser to the greater. And I find it interesting in the illustration, he deals with provisions of daily life. He's not talking about extravagant living. Basically he's saying, what father would dream of giving their child? And have you ever been along a, uh, well, the lake shore here or in a desert and, and you see a stone that's a very light colored and it's almost shaped like a bun or a, or, a, or a loaf of bread? What father would give a child a stone that resembled a loaf of bread and not the real thing? What father would give a child a serpent that might cause them harm instead of a fish? So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to our children, how much greater does God know what to give to us? See, he presupposes here the sinful nature of man. And I understand that there are limitations to the illustration, but in general it holds true. In, in my career as a little league coach in baseball and in hockey, I ran into all kinds of interesting characters. And I remember one father from T-Ball. He was a rough-looking dude, if there was ever one. But we knew him outside of T-Ball. We knew the kind of past that he had at one time. And it was amazing. He came there to watch his 8-year-old daughter 
that didn't live with him every week play baseball. He'd bring her something, and he'd hold her so gently. If somebody like that knows how to give good gifts to their own child and understands that precious relationship, how much more our Heavenly Father does he know to give good gifts to you and I? However, we must ask. I know as a father, when my kids were little, I still do it with them. Sometimes I watch them struggle with things. When they were younger, it could have been a school project. Uh, When they're older, sometimes it's working with wood or fixing something. And I I don't step in and go, I know how to do that. I let them struggle for a while. Because I know if I stepped in, because I did this when they were younger, some of you parents might be able to relate to this, I'll do it. And they pull the project or the wood close to them as they slap your hand as you try to help. I can do that. At some point, when they know they have a need, when they understand that they're lacking and they can't do it, then they would come and say, hey, Dad, can you help me with this? Now, as inadequate as that illustration is, God is not going to force himself on us. Rather, he waits. And he waits for his children to ask, to to admit that they have a need, that they can't do it on their own. And he assures us that that prayer will be heard. Not a prayer that is selfishly motivated, but a prayer that brings glory to him. That's the type of prayer he will hear. John Elbert Brodus, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, back in the late 1800s, had this to say. One may truly be an industrious man, yet be poor in temporal things. But one cannot be truly a praying man, and yet be poor in spiritual things. If you're to search the internet looking for ways to develop your prayer life, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. You're going to find articles, four keys to prayer, five keys to prayer, seven keys to prayer, ten steps to better prayer. One thing I have found helpful for myself is journaling. I also play background music when I take time to study and pray, it helps me to focus rather than get distracted with the other noises outside the room I'm in. And it helps me not to nod off when I'm praying. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure if I ask, there are many might struggle with that part after a little while of nodding off, if we're going to be honest. I also find that sometimes longer prayers are better for me when I go out for a walk or a bicycle ride. Just don't close your eyes. Um... I tend to do a lot of praying when I drive. I like the prayer reminders in the family brief and and inside the bulletin to pray for families in the church. But I want to take you back to to verse 7. I think that's where we find the key to prayer. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The point is to do it and keep doing it. 
I can't explain to you all the mysteries of prayer. I just know God does move and God does answer prayer. And you can see it when, when something happens that all other explanations can't make sense of it. By faith, I pray. I continuously pray, asking God for wisdom to make me more like a citizen of his kingdom, to make me more like Jesus Christ. And, and if you're like me, that's a hard one. Am I becoming like Christ? Am I wiser today than I was a year ago? Do I possess the wisdom to navigate the complexities of the life that God has called me into, to the times to where I was born? I ask for daily wisdom, and, and I seek out daily wisdom. I listen to people that are wiser than me, and I knock at heaven's door asking for discernment to navigate this culture that is so godless. I want to be a citizen of the kingdom, and I can't do that on my own. So my encouragement to you this morning is this, to pray, to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking at the door of heaven, and God will answer. Let's pray. Father, we think of all the complexities of life, and we think of needing to live as citizens of the kingdom. We come to you this morning as a local church, as a lighthouse here in Forest in Lambton Shores. And Father, we need wisdom. We need courage and we need strength. We need courage and strength to live a life that shines the light of Jesus Christ in a dark, dark world. We need wisdom to navigate the complexities, the moral dilemmas that continually rise before us whether it's abortion, Lord, or whether it's calling boys, girls, and girls, boy, there is so much out there, Lord Jesus. Give us the wisdom that we need. We ask for it. We seek it. We come to the door of heaven looking for it. That we might be a, a, a strong witness in this community. That we might know our scriptures and to be able to defend the faith and to share we thank you for your word, for the wisdom in it, for the, for the wisdom in being able to turn to you in prayer and saying, I can't do it, Lord. I need your spirit in me. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.